Our Old Testament reading today is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And that you shall do the same with his donkey or his garment, or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help, lift them, help him to lift them up again. The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalm 24. We will read responsibly by whole verse. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the compass of the world and those who dwell therein. He has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers of the deep. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, even those who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? It is the Lord, strong and mighty, even the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is from the book of Acts. Chapter 16, verses 16 through 19. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. The word of the Lord. The gospel lesson for this morning comes from Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 10. Will you please stand for the reading of the Gospel? Church, this is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. 
and he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come in on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it over to the water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what, till I, to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sown in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. We continue in Luke, journeying with Jesus as he goes about in Galilee and then in greater Israel, teaching, preaching, healing, performing miracles. And we're preparing to start journeying with Jesus as he sets his face for Jerusalem and goes to his um, to the final place that he will ever be before his crucifixion. If you want to follow along in your Bible, uh, you can turn to Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. If you didn't bring a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along, there are blue Bibles just like this in the back on that low wooden table. And if you would like a Bible but don't own a Bible, then one of those blue Bibles on the table is yours to keep as our gift to you. This is the second time in two weeks where Jesus is kind of teeing off on some religious rulers about hypocrisy. And it's a little different from last week's, but there are some similarities too. I mean, Jesus just does not have any room in his life for the hypocrisy of the, of the so-called religious leaders, the elders that were supposed to be leading the people of Israel in that day. Because over and over again, they had been people who got caught up in the letter of the law, but had completely and utterly missed the spirit of the law. And who, the, and who the lawgiver wants them to be. And, and just like last week, uh, it's a story where Jesus rails on these hypocrites, but then ends up at the end talking about yeast. A little different, but we'll get to that at the end. Let me pray for us as we open God's Word together. God, we thank you that we have these stories and teachings of Jesus. We thank you that, um, that, you, were, that you laid down for us through various men, the, the life and the ministry of Jesus so that we can learn from him, so that we can be amazed by him just as the people around him were. We ask that you would, that you would take this passage and, and use it to increase our love of you and to illumine our paths as we walk through your world. In Christ's name, amen. This happens a lot in the gospel, in the beginning of this passage. Jesus is somewhere in a town, in a village, in the wilderness, wherever. And someone comes up to him who is physically unwell, a cripple, a blind man, a leper. 
even the father or mother of a child who seems to have already died. People are constantly coming up to Jesus and asking him, please, rabbi, teacher, healer, what can you do for us? And so this time Jesus is in a synagogue and he's teaching on the Sabbath day. Except this time it's different. And I think that Luke is very clear to point this out. This woman doesn't come up to Jesus at all. She isn't, she isn't seeking him. She isn't trying to get to him. Jesus, in the middle of his teaching, on the Sabbath, in the synagogue, Jesus looks and he sees her. He finds her. And he calls her to himself. She's not the one doing the asking. He's the one doing the asking. He sees a need and he calls her to himself. Can you imagine what it might be like for 18 years not to be able to stand up straight or to look someone in the eye, not to be able to, to walk without physical pain, not to be able to fit into a crowd of people, to always stand out, to always be noticed. I think that between the physical pain that she must have felt, the, the psychological pain of knowing that it would probably never get better, and the social ostracization of always standing out. That would be a lifetime of physical pain and anguish and outsiderness. And Jesus, with, with a word from his mouth and a touch from his hand, he makes that all go away. He completely restores her. He says, woman, you are free of your disability. And then he laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored. She was restored and she began to glorify God. And then the leader of the synagogue becomes indignant because Jesus had healed someone on the Sabbath. And he tells the crowd, and this is another place where I think Luke is genuinely funny. He tells the crowd, there are six days that work should be done here. Therefore, come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. But the thing is, I can absolutely understand this synagogue leader's misgivings. I mean, I really can the Israelites and the Jews took the Sabbath incredibly seriously. But the reason for that is because God in the Old Testament, when he laid down his law, he takes it unbelievably seriously. So I can sympathize with the idea of let's do everything that we can to make sure we're not doing any work on the Sabbath. But again, this, this synagogue leader, by, by looking to rigorously keep the letter of the law, may have kind of missed what the spirit of the law is. This last week in the, in the, the daily prayer lectionary, um, we were in Exodus 31. And this was really interesting because I was already preparing this sermon. In Exodus 31, God has already given out his Ten Commandments. And then the rest of most of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is sort of case studies expanding on the law that God had given. Examples of how people can either keep God's law or break it. And so Exodus 31 was really interesting. Starting in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Tell this to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths, because they are a sign between me and you throughout all generations, so that you will know that I am the Lord your God who consecrates you. Observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Whoever profanes it must be put to death. If anyone does any work on the Sabbath, that person must be cut off from his people. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day there is to be a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Anyone who does work on the Sabbath must be put to death. The Israelites must observe this Sabbath, celebrating it throughout the generations as a permanent covenant. It is a sign forever between me and the Israelites. 
This is hard stuff. Like, I can understand why the synagogue leader felt this way. Do not do any work on the Sabbath. If you do, you must be cut off from your people. That is to say, you must be put outside the camp. All protections are removed from you. You are no longer one of us. And then later it says, anyone who does work on the Sabbath must be put to death. Why? Why? Like, what's the, what's the big deal? There are, a lot of, there are a lot of commandments that seem like they might carry a harsher penalty than this. Do not murder might be at the top of that list. Um, do not worship any god besides, besides Yahweh. Why is the Sabbath such a big deal over and over in the, New, in the Old Testament? To see it from their point of view, from the original audience of, of the Old Testament books, you have to put yourself in the mindset of a culture that had absolutely no idea what a day off was. And that's a little odd for us. For most cultures around Israel at the time the Old Testament was written, the idea of a day off was a joke. I mean, it might have been for like the rich and the powerful, but for you and me, for like wage earners, there were no days off. And so the fact that the God of the Israelites had actually given and instructed and mandated that everyone in his covenant family take one day of rest every single week. This was revolutionary. It was almost ridiculous. It was a mercy that he did this for them. And it was a gift. And it was also a matter of trust that God was asking, God was asking his people to have an increased measure of trust in him. So he was mandating that they take one day every week to rest from their labors and focused on, focus on the most important thing, which is God. And God took this really, really seriously, and he wanted to make sure that people would get into this rhythm of weekly Sabbath observance, of rest, and of worship. And he wanted them to do it every week so that they started to understand. Because a lot of this resting imagery and Sabbath imagery that we see in the Old Testament are just really foretastes of what God is eventually going to do for his people. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus himself is our true and final Sabbath rest. And, and the books of the Old Testament and New Testament prophecy always point forward to a time when Christ will come back and he will cause everything to enter into this final full Sabbath rest that never ends. And so the idea of a Sabbath rest is not a burden. It wasn't supposed to be burdensome for these people. They were supposed to put their trust in God because of it, because they had 14% less time to do all the work that they needed to do. But it was also a mercy. It was a gift and it was a guide. The gift is here's a day. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to take care of you. Enjoy this. But it was also a guide. Here's a day that you don't get to do anything. Put your trust in me to make sure that everything will get done. Both of those things, very, very formative for God's people. And so it kind of helps to illustrate what Jesus said. The idea that the Sabbath itself, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The idea is this. The Sabbath was a gift and a guide for you. It's not that God made a bunch of rules before he made people and then, and then made people so that they could slot into all those rules and conform. The structure that God made for his people, the structure is supposed to serve the people, not the other way around. But because God takes this so seriously, sometimes, and this is not just, because this is not just with Sabbath, sometimes in an effort to get it right, we get it wrong. 
And so our Sabbath leader is a great example of this. I'm sorry, our synagogue leader is a great example of this. He was so mad because the Lord of glory, Jesus, God the Son in human flesh, had just supernaturally and miraculously healed this woman who had had this affliction for almost two decades. And instantly she was better. And the synagogue leader basically says, he says, there's six days that you could have done this. Not today, though. Not today. This is not the appropriate time. It's basically like, go find miracles on your own time. This is, this is God's day. What are we doing here? It would, be like, it would be like if a homeless woman, drunk, strung out, walked in here right now in the middle of me preaching and cried out for help. And it, and, and it would be like if I turned to her and said, Madam, I am so sorry. We are trying to worship God here. This is not the time for you to ask for our help. Like, that's kind of what the synagogue leader here is. Find, find healing the other six days of the week. Not on God's day. But Jesus was very quick to show us that the structure that, had, that God had made, the structure serves the people, not the other way around. And Jesus said, how many of you, turning to the synagogue leaders, how many of you will untie your animals and lead it from the manger over to the water trough on the Sabbath? So clearly, they didn't think that was work. Why is what I'm doing work? It's not using your animals to accomplish a task. It's just the basic care and feeding of a living thing. And so he's calling them hypocrites because he's saying, you'll let me, and the, the language kind of bears this out. It's a little bit of wordplay. He says, you'll untie an ox on the Sabbath, but you won't let me untie this woman on the Sabbath. So an animal you're fine with, but this, this woman, and he calls her a daughter of Abraham, and that's really important. He's saying, A, she is an image bearer of God. B, she is, she is one of your kinsmen. She is part of, your, of God's covenant family of which you are a part. And you're not going to let me care for her? How much more, he's saying, how much more should, we, should you let me care for this woman than you care for your animals on the Sabbath? Or there's another example, actually, that, that Jesus gives from a different part of the Old Testament law from Deuteronomy 22. Now, he doesn't mention it in this passage in Luke, but there's another passage in Luke where he's doing the same thing, yelling it at Pharisees about hypocrisy on the Sabbath. But in Deuteronomy 22, the Old Testament law says to the Israelites, if you see your brother's ox or your sheep straying away, don't ignore it. Go get it. Go get it and return it to your brother. If your brother doesn't live near you, or if you don't know him, and in this case, brother doesn't mean like your blood relation. It means like somebody in your family. Somebody in your village, in your tribe, in your nation, your neighbor. So if your brother doesn't live near you or you don't know him, you're to bring the animal to your home and it will remain with you until your brother comes looking for it. So you're supposed to care and feed this thing that you don't even know, that you're not going to have any benefit from. It says you must not ignore it. If you see your brother's donkey or ox fallen down in a ditch, don't ignore it. Help him lift it up. And it doesn't say, uh, and remember, never do these things on the Sabbath. This is the rule of how we're supposed to care for one another. But for the synagogue's leaders, if, if your brother's ox falls into the ditch on a Sunday, or I'm sorry, on a Sabbath, we'll get to that in a minute, uh, on the Sabbath, I guess, like, say a prayer for it and just hope that it lives until the day after the Sabbath because then we can get a whole bunch of people together and help get it out. So sometimes, I think, the chance to love our neighbor might happen exactly during a Sabbath rest. I think this is what Jesus is showing us. Jesus would seem to indicate that actually 
fulfilling the two great commandments that he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Fulfilling these two great commandments would be a good guiding principle, even over a law that God says is so serious that somebody who breaks it should be put to death. And so even on the Sabbath, we can find ways not only to love God, which we do here, but to also love our neighbor. But it takes wisdom to figure out kind of what the boundaries of that are, doesn't it? How might this translate to us today? Well, firstly, now, we would call this our day of Sabbath rest. It isn't, according to the Old Testament. Sabbath in, in, um, in Hebrew, Shabbat in Hebrew means seven. It's the seventh day of the week. It was Saturday. It was always Saturday. It was always Saturday until shortly after Jesus' resurrection. We shifted the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week, the day that God rests, rested from his labors. We shifted that one day ahead to the first day of the week, the resurrection day, the Lord's day, Sunday. And it's kind of easy to forget that when we have this idea of, of a weekend in this culture being Saturday and Sunday. I mean, I'm a pastor, and I forget all the time that Sunday is the first day of the week and not the last day of the week before this. Basically, since the time of the apostles, um, since the time the book of Revelation was written down, the people of, of this Christian church had already been talking about moving, the, moving God's celebration day, the Sabbath day, one day ahead to the resurrection day. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. That could be a whole separate discussion for why do we, why do we practice our Sabbath on Sunday. So the question is, how should we think of Sundays in light of what Jesus says here? In light of what God's law says about the Sabbath, what should we do about this? Well, it depends on what your view of a Sunday is supposed to be. There's, there's a couple different views of, of what the Sabbath is supposed to be for us. Some people think that it should be a day when we do absolutely nothing that is not specifically God-oriented. And so that means no TV, no movies, no having fun. That's not true. But no, um, nothing that isn't explicitly about the worship of God or resting. That's what the Sabbath is supposed to be. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who say that Sunday is basically like Saturday, except that there's one 90-minute chunk somewhere in the day where we all come together and worship God. But the rest of the time, we can do work. We can take care of things. It's just like any other day. And I was a little bit like that second person for a while, and it's actually the reason I'm an Anglican. I'm an Anglican because of Sunday brunch. True. True. When I came back to the church, I was still in the restaurant business, and I had a job where I had to work every single Sunday brunch. There was no way out of it. We did 20% of the business for the entire week during that Sunday brunch shift, and I couldn't get out of it. So I had to find a church that was near my restaurant and met at night, because that was the only way I was ever getting to church. And so my mom found this Anglican church that was four blocks from my, from my restaurant and met at 5 p.m. That's why I'm an Anglican today. So some people's work requires them to work on the Sabbath? Are they sinning? Would, would a, a good reading of Exodus 31 show that these people should be put to death or put outside the camp? I mean, doctors, EMTs, police officers, there's a lot of people that their vocation requires them to work on Sunday. Is that breaking the Sabbath or is that serving your neighbor? It takes wisdom to know that. Can we follow Jesus in our vocation if we still have to work on Sunday? I think this passage would say that yes, we can. 
What about people who, who don't work in that kind of first responder role? But they still would like to go out to a restaurant on a Sunday or maybe run to the hardware store or the grocery store because they need something. Is that work? Are they doing work? Are they causing someone else to sin? Are they not loving their neighbor because they're causing someone else to work? It takes wisdom to know these things. But I think, as interesting as that discussion is, and most of the commentaries that I read this week had a lot to say about how are we supposed to be dealing with the Sabbath. That's a good discussion to have. But that's not, what Luke, that's not why Luke put this in his book, so that we could have a discussion about what we're supposed to do on the Sabbath. The main point of this, I think, is to show how graciously Jesus dealt with both the, the crippled and the needy, but also the, the pious and the legalistic and the rigid. And to see what the reaction from each one of these groups was. Verse 17, as he said all these things, all of his adversaries, all the people that he was just calling hypocrites, all of his adversaries were shamed. And all of the people, anytime you see that word, the people, it's like just the, the common people, the people that would have been around Jesus, not the leaders. You have the leaders and the people. So as he said these things, all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were being done by him. Whenever Jesus spoke, anytime that he preached, anytime that he did miracles, anytime he opened his mouth or showed up in a town, reaction to him was always mixed. Some people would rejoice and marvel, some people would be furious at him, and some people, in looking upon him, would be ashamed. Those who already thought they were righteous, so they thought they had no need of Jesus' teachings, maybe his healings, maybe even what he would end up representing, his, his sacrificial death in our place, the pious ones, the one who thought that rule following would earn them the righteousness of God that, that they so wanted, they were the ones who would be mad. They were the ones who, God, who Jesus would call hypocrites. They were the ones who would be ashamed. But to those who absolutely knew that they needed healing, those works that this great healer was doing in their midst were, were glorious. They would rejoice and celebrate. To those, to those who knew that they were hungry, finding this bread that they had been begging for was a time for celebration. Jesus said that he didn't come to save the healthy, but the sick. He said he didn't come to save those who were already righteous. And the, the joke there is that none of us are righteous. No, not one. But there's a lot of people who think that they are. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. And so this is just another example of, of, of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to incarnate this is, this is just another example of the kingdom of God breaking into this world, but in a way that we never thought it would. That's what Jesus brought. It's what each of his teachings and his miracles were. Little instances of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and basically showing, how, showing this world how the world was supposed to be. Because this woman shouldn't have been doubled over and disfigured for 18 years. She, is, she was a daughter of Abraham. She's a member of God's covenant family. And more, she's an image bearer of God, created to be a, a steward of this world in his place. It wasn't supposed to be this way. But death and disease and disfigurement 
entered the world through mankind's sin, and this woman was a clear victim of that. But the leaders of this synagogue, the leaders of this synagogue would rather have her continue in her disability, in her disfigurement, and in her pain than to see their rule-keeping upset. You'll untie your animals on the Sabbath, but I shouldn't untie this woman on the Sabbath? What is wrong with you? So this, this healing that Jesus does, this little one random person in a, in a random synagogue on a random Saturday, that is the kingdom of God breaking into this world, putting things back the way they should have been. And N.T. Wright said that it's almost like Jesus was saying through this, what better day to do this than on the Sabbath? What better day when God's people are all gathered to be in his presence? What better day for the kingdom of God to, in little small ways, break into the kingdom of this world? Because the Sabbath itself is about wholeness. It's about the pursuit of restoration and shalom. That, that, that word that we sometimes translate as peace, but that doesn't even come close to defining it. It's a, an all-encompassing rightness between us and everybody else in the world. And so what better time to show God's power and his mercy and his gift of, of wholeness and restoration than on a Sabbath day? And so it's this little inbreaking of the kingdom that Jesus was talking about when he, did, when he said the next thing that he said. And this is the last two little sentences he says in this, in this passage. Verse 18, he says, it says, he said, therefore, as in he said in response to what had just happened. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? He said, it's like a grain of mustard, a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and it became a tree so big that the birds of the air nested in it. And then again, he said, so what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast. Anytime you see leaven, it's, a, it's just a word for yeast. It's like yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Little by little, through these little inbreaking of God's kingdom. Little by little, God's kingdom spreads into this world. A mustard seed was the tiniest seed in that region at that time. And the Bible is always written to be understood primarily, first and foremost, by the people who were the initial audience. And so um, there are tinier seeds in the world, and you'll hear, you'll hear non-believers say, well, he says that a mustard seed is the smallest, but look at this one over here in Australia. Well, that's fine. Um, the mustard seed was the tiniest seed in that area at that time. And this incredibly small seed, you plant it, and slowly, bit by bit, almost imperceptibly, it will grow into a, a plant or a tree that is over 12 feet tall, slowly, deliberately. And it happens one person at a time, as with Jesus and this crippled woman. Little by little, God's kingdom spreads. Last week, last week Jesus used yeast as a negative example. He was saying that hypocrisy in a church, hypocrisy in a body of believers, can spread like, a, like yeast through dough. That is, if you leave it alone, and if you don't deal with it, a little bit of yeast or the, the hypocrisy of one person can spread throughout the whole dough and infect the whole church. So that was the negative example of yeast last week. This week, same, same illustration, but in a positive way. The kingdom of God is like leaven. It's like yeast. It spreads slowly, almost imperceptibly, but it spreads. 
Because if a baker puts a little bit of yeast into an enormous quantity of flour, and it says here three measures. It's not the most helpful translation. Um, it's basically looking back at an Old Testament unit of measure called a siah, which three measures of flour was if you had a five-gallon bucket of dough. Okay? A lot of dough. Put a little bit of yeast somewhere in there. Hide it in there. And that yeast will eventually work its way through the entire five gallons. It will work its way into the entire dough, and the entire dough will begin to rise because of it. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus started with 12 guys, 12 apostles. 12 apostles and then 70 missionary disciples. 12 apostles and then 70 missionary disciples and then maybe, maybe a couple hundred people who were sort of following him or fans of him. Within a couple hundred years of his resurrection, it had spread to every single corner of the Roman Empire. Today, 2,000 years later, there are 2 billion Christians worldwide in every single country on earth. Slowly, over time, the kingdom of God will spread through little, small, one-on-one incidents like Jesus is illustrating here, through this momentary inbreaking of healing and restoration. The leaven will continue until that entire five-gallon bucket is leavened. And the gospel will continue to spread until it covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. This is from, straight from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so this is just one example. In that synagogue, on that day, people actually saw God's glory. They had a knowledge of the glory of the Lord. When the king of heaven brought a little bit of heaven down to earth, healing this woman showing her and everyone gathered how things are supposed to be, taking the crippled and making them whole, making a crooked thing straight. Not everyone, not everyone who is a follower of Jesus is going to be supernaturally healed of their infirmities. That is not promised to us. There are people in this room right now who have had chronic illnesses for as long as this woman was bent over double. But, The life of each Christian, the actual lives that we get to live, are in some way one of these little inbreakings of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world. They're an inbreaking of the kingdom of God into a dark and hungry world that is desperate for truth. And so while we might not be healed, and we might not be the healers ourselves, because only Christ is the great healer, we can point to the healer. Each of us, as a little inbreaking of the kingdom of God, we can point to this healer. And so each of us gets to be that next piece in the dough. Each of us, when we are, when we are leavened ourselves, we then get to pass that on and bring that leaven to other people. Because the kingdom of God grows one person at a time. And it grows, in the example of the mustard seed and of the dough and of this woman, it grows in small but unmistakable ways. Each disciple made, each act of worshiping God, each act of loving neighbor, it pushes that yeast a little further out into the dough. It it pushes the roots of the tree, of this mustard tree, down a little bit deeper into the ground so that the leaves can spread out and rise a little bit more. The birth of Christ was the birth of the king of this world. The birth of Jesus was the birth of 
of the king of this world. And so as we journey with him to the cross throughout the remainder of Lent, we journey toward this bizarre and counterintuitive coronation that he goes through in his death and his resurrection. The death that he dies in our place and the resurrection into this new Sabbath life, into this new forever, forever Sabbath existence that he calls all of us into. And so in the meantime, we get to be the inbreaking. We get to be the instruments that he has chosen in his good pleasure to use for the spread of his kingdom until his return. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.